Before we move on to our regularly scheduled program, this is Lily from the future for this episode, not your future, but this episode's future. From post-production, post-editing, post-everything, I just wanted to slip this in here as an apology and a note that this episode, as you may have noticed, did not come out on time. We had a massive, massive snowstorm that knocked out our power, our internet, our roads, and even a cell tower. So I live in the middle of nowhere. We are the last people to ever get serviced during storms. It takes sometimes days for us to get power back after big snowstorms. So we just had to ride Mother Nature's wave. I do not fight Mother Nature. She would most certainly win in a battle against me. But that does mean that this episode did not get to be able to post on time. And sometimes my internet is really finicky and I can just use my cell service, which, because I said, like I said, I live in the middle of nowhere, so sometimes our internet goes down. But I couldn't even do that because a cell tower must have gotten hit with a tree or something. I can only imagine what happened. But I don't have any service. I couldn't check any notifications. I couldn't update you guys on what was happening because I just... I couldn't. I was in the dark ages, and I'm so, so sorry. So this episode is going to go out the very second it can go out, but I don't know when that's going to be, and I just want to apologize for anyone whose schedule or routine got messed up because of this. I am so, so, so sorry. And as you'll see in a second, this episode was just, like, fraught with chaos because it did not go the way it was supposed to go. It was supposed to be something else, and it didn't end up being that, and you'll hear me in a second do that in intro. But yeah, sometimes Mother Nature just says, hey, take a breather. And you just got to listen to Mother Nature when she says, hey, take a breather. And I did that. And I'm sorry. I am. I'm just so sorry. I'm just sorry I couldn't get posted. I tried to be as, you know, as smooth running and as perfect as I can be for you guys. And when that just doesn't happen, it just makes me so frustrated with myself. But I am sorry. We're going to move on in a second. But we are safe. We are totally fine. It's just a winter wonderland out here in the dark ages because I still don't have service. I'm running off of my little generator right now. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sorry and continue on to fun theories and SJM. Hi, and welcome back to Spatulas and Speculations. I am your unofficial Professor Lily, and this is the unofficial SJM 101. Today is not the Asriel character deep dive. As I promised, for some reason, I worked like six hours like every single day on it, and by the time recording day happened, I was not ready, and even if I'd worked all day on recording day and recorded late into the night, it just still would not be what I wanted it to be and as in-depth as I wanted it to be, and you guys deserve utter perfection from me. You guys are totally deserving of utter perfection from me. So, I don't feel confident in what I had, and I needed more time, and I hate admitting defeat, but that boy, he slays me on a daily basis, but boy, he slayed me this week with all of the stuff. I was at my wit's end with him for a little bit there. So today is going to be a a very fun episode, actually, because it's, these are theories that are pretty big in depth, but they're small in the amount of content they give me. So like they're almost too big for a TikTok video, but they're too small to have as their own episode as on the podcast. So I put together quite a few of them and we're going to do a very in-depth fun theory day. And I am so sorry if you were looking forward to the as episode. And it's not even going to be out next week because next week we have a conversation with two other theorists 
that are coming on to the podcast with me and that was pre-scheduled like a month or two in advance and they we all live on the other sides of the universe from each other so that was the day we have scheduled and that's the day it's going to happen so it'll be not next week but the week after that so i deeply deeply apologize So before we go any further, let's get our spoiler warnings out of the way and done with. So today we are going to be doing SJM Universe spoilers. I'm going to be talking about things from all three series, and they'll probably be massive spoilers as we discuss what these theories could mean and where they could go for the SJM Universe. So if you haven't finished reading all 15 books that has been written by Sarah J. Mass, including Assassin's Blade, my friends, then save this, follow me, come back and join the conversation when you are done. The second warning disclaimer is that I don't speak for Sarah and I don't speak for Bloomsbury. These are my thoughts. These are my opinions. These are my theories. This is the information that I've put together. I'm human. I could make a mistake. I could miss something. And if I do, you feel free to message me on Instagram. That's the best place to get in touch with me is on Instagram. And if you have messaged me on Instagram and I didn't respond to you in a timely manner just nudge me again because instagram tends to bury dms after a while and i just can miss them and i apologize it is not something on you it's not whatever you messaged me just send it to me again just nudge me again and i will respond to you in a more timely manner hopefully hopefully the third disclaimer is that i sometimes mispronounce things and a lot of people told me to stop apologizing for it but i'm still gonna apologize for it because i still feel bad because it does bother quite a lot of people but just know that I am working every day to get better and I try as hard as I can and if it bothers you I'm sorry but we're gonna move on so today I have five theories for you guys that range from talking about the Ouroboros salt the Pegasuses, Reese's family ring necromancy all this good stuff and we're just gonna dive straight deep into SJM theory mode and just get a little, get a little crazy, a little crazy, factual crazy, always with canon, always, always, always with canon, but yeah, chaos ensues. The very first theory that I have is something that I know I've said on this podcast. I know I've said it before because it's just something that I have like so deeply ingrained into my brain and I believe it so entirely that I refuse to accept any other answer because any other answer would not make any sense. And that is wordstone is obsidian salt. And the reason why I will not accept any other answer is because any other answer would not make literally any sense. So when we look at the word word stone, we have to remember that 90% of the the terms that we have in Throne of Glass are not their original real terms. All the Valg names are not their real names. Maeve's real name is not actually Maeve. She could be somebody else from some other world. You know, all of that stuff. So even in Queen of Shadows, when Aelin first sees the word hound, she comes up with the name word hound. It has nothing really to do with the word fate or anything like that. So all of the terms that we get in Throne of Glass are just purely made up for shits and giggles. I love Aelin. I love her to my very core. If I had to choose myself or Aelin, I would immediately throw myself off of a bridge for her. No questions asked type of love for Aelin. But if I could ask her one singular question, it would be, you looked at this great big monstrous being in a sewer And you said, 
I'm gonna call it a word hound, not because it has anything to do with the word and not because it looks like a dog, but for shits and giggles, it would have made more sense for Aelin to call it Rainbow Sparkles Poop McGee than a word hound. I can only believe that Sarah just picked the name Wordhound simply to mess with me, simply to cause me stress and anxiety throughout my daily life. I, it is the only thing I can come up with. <laughs> because when we, when we see, like, the word keys, we know that the word keys, that sliver of stone, literally did come from the word gate. There are those are tiny slivers. Those three tiny slivers killed an entire race of Valg death maidens, people like Urine, to make, to forge. There's no, there's no possible way that they were able to get enough stone that landed on Aurelia, not even just like came from other places, but actually landed on Aurelia because the clock towers were built differently, built in a different time than when the Valg bros originally came from came to Aurelia. So we have gigantic clock towers. We have crowns. We have collars. We got rings. Like they're fashioning a whole arsenal of weapons. And that couldn't have just come from whatever fell from the word gate onto Aurelia. Like there's no possible way. It has to be something else. And so my brain, the only logical answer, and I like, even if you wanted to argue with me, I would, la, 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 I, I I can't hear you, la, 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 is it has to be obsidian salt. And this is why. So this is what obsidian salt is. We learn about it in House of Earth and Blood 18 when Bryce is in the meat market going to purchase it to summon Adis, and it says this. Black salts were used for summoning demons directly, bypassing the northern rift entirely, or for various dark spell work. A salt that went beyond black, a salt like obsidian, it could summon something big. So this is able to summon a demon Valg, by bypassing both a rift and the gate. So you don't need any of that for summoning salt. And then later in House of Earth and Blood, when she actually does summon Adis, she says the obsidian salt will hold it. So similar wording to Wordstone, it holds a demon some, or it holds something in place in a circle. Notice that rings are circles, crowns are circles, torques, the necklace thingies, the chokers, circles. They're all circles and they're holding a demon in a body. It's the only thing that makes sense. But okay, so we know that obsidian salt acts like wordstone, but is wordstone actually obsidian salt? How can you say that? Well, whenever a wordstone is described, it is always described with the word obsidian next to it. So when talking about the clock tower for the very first time in Throne of Glass 47, Aelin says, standing on the wide veranda that encompassed the obsidian clock tower. Later on in Crown of Midnight 43, it says, shimmering obsidian walls surrounded her, reaching high, high, so high she couldn't see the ceiling. Now, the clock tower was used to cast the spell, right? Black salt can be used to cast dark spells. And inside that obsidian clock tower triangle, I think it was a triangle, no magic could be used in it. Just like it was holding holding back, maybe it was like a like an opposite effect kind of thing, but it, it was a spell, but the second you left that circle, you could use your magic again. So it sounds just like a summoning circle, but you just couldn't do something inside of the circle. Does that make any sense? 
When we see the flashback in Empire Storms chapter 65 in Elena's perspective, she says, on her knees, sharp black rock, Elena grazed the obsidian sarcophagus, the symbols carved into it. So, it's never actually even said if it was wordstone that they trapped Erwin in, but I think it's interesting that it's a big old obsidian slab of rock that was used to trap and hold a being, just like they used the salt with Edis. Hmm. But the, I think the biggest bit of like aha moment for me is in Koa 111, when she says, but there would be no keys, no ability for Irwin to craft more wordstone, to bring his vow to possess others. So Irwin was using the keys to summon them into the wordstone to possess others. And I think that's really important to note is that, yes, some Valg were left after the time of Brannon, but it wasn't an entire army. It wasn't like a huge fleet of people that they end up using to possess people like we see in Throne of Glass, because there was like an entire army of them that they were fighting throughout Throne of, uh, throughout Kingdom of Ash. So he was using, like he was bringing them to the bodies, right? From wherever they, from the Valg world, I guess. So I just think it's interesting that it, like you had to use the keys to craft wordstone, to summon demons into it. So, in my head, obsidian salt is wordstone. I will not be convinced otherwise. I mean, just from the clock tower alone, and then also, I just think it's bonkers. It's bonkers that it's like a circle that they hold, how it is, and then everything that they wear is a circle that holds the demon possession. And the second, the very second that the circle is broken, the connection, the connection is broken, just like in summoning. So, it just... <laughs> I just can't. I can't. So, in my head, obsidian salt is wordstone. And the only reason they call it wordstone is because they just don't know what else to call it. Because apparently obsidian was banned by the gods. And also, like, throughout Throne of Glass, like, they have those salt mines. Unless the Valk have some unhealthy obsession with overly salted food, I cannot begin to imagine why they would need like they actually like talk about in throne of glass how they need more slaves because they need more salt why do they need more salt are the roads icy there i i <laughs> i there's no other reason i mean i'm sure you could be like lillian they needed to do something with the slaves sure i guess but it's not like they were trading with people it wasn't like salt was just like revered around the world, like Riffhold salt, nothing better. You don't hear Maeve going like, I need me some Riffhold salt. Like nobody cares about salt except for the Valg. So it has to be that they were mining obsidian salt or trying to mine for obsidian salt. Like that's the only possible explanation that I can have for why, like other than they just wanted people in mines, which I yes, okay, fine, yes, that is a valid, whatever, evil be evil, but also I'm a log I'm a logistical person. You could have had your slaves doing literally anything else, but mining salt? I mean, if they didn't do it for any other reason than that, then I would like to have a word with Irwin about his logistical plans, you know? Anyways, moving on. 
Our next theory falls in line with the last theory in talking about salts, and this is something that I recently was screaming about on my TikTok, and I actually just, like, shoved it in onto this because I had, I had this episode kind of on the back burner, something I wanted to do, um, so I shuffled around some things and I, I picked a different theory. I, I, I picked out a different theory to, to do on a later date because I just want to talk about this because I was, I am screaming over this and it continues on the conversation of salt. So it's a good segue into the next theory, but the house of wind is blood salt. And this one's going to be a little bit different. This one I, I hold, you know, okay, fine. Maybe not, maybe, maybe not, but I don't, I can't think of any other reason why it was so deeply mentioned. Like the obsidian salt totally, that's a I refuse to believe anything else, even if we never, ever get an answer, that is still the answer to me. But this one, I could accept another answer. Maybe. It'd have to be a really good answer. <laughs> so, in Akamath 15, when Vera first sees the House of Wind, she says this, There, like eternal guardians of the city, towered a wall of flat-topped mountains of red stone, the same stone that had been used to build some of the structures. They curved around the northern edge of Valaris, to where the river bent towards them and flowed into their shadow. To the north, different mountains surrounded the city across the river. A range of sharp peaks, like fish teeth, cleaved the city's merry hills from the sea beyond. But these mountains behind me, they were sleeping giants, somehow alive, awake, as if an answer that undiluting, slithering power slid along my bones, like a cat brushing against my legs for attention. I ignored it. The middle peak reset from behind me, and I whirled, remembering he was there. He just pointed towards the largest of the plateaus, holes, and windows, it seemed to have been built into the upper part of it and flying towards it, borne on large, dark wings, were two figures. That is my other home in this city, the House of Wind. And then later in Akamath 16, when Farrah actually goes to the House of Wind, it says this, More offered as we entered the warmth and the red stone of the dining room. But I want you to myself before Amron hogs you. The interior dining room doors opened on a whispering wind, revealing the shadowed crimson halls of the mountain beyond. So literally the house of wind is all redstone. And I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm just going to read through all of like quick little sections of it just so you can really get into here that like literally everything about the house of wind is redstone. And I never really like, I read it and I was just like redstone, but then my mind was like, that's not how I pictured the House of Wind literally at all. It just goes to so, like, like, sometimes you'll read something, but your head's going to picture something totally different. And I'm just going to, like, I'm going to reshape it just for the sake of this theory. And if you want to just ignore that it's redstone when you're reading, totally do that. I, I will probably end up doing that. But just for the sake of theory, I'm just going to prove to you that every room in the House of Wind is basically redstone. So in Akawar 15, again, it says, There was a coiled, razor-sharp tension in Cassian as the three of us strode the stairways of the house, the redstone halls dim and echoing with the rustle of Cassian's wings and the faint howl of the wind rattling in every window. In Akawar 16, it says, Rhysand silently led Lucian to the suite he'd be occupying at the opposite end of the House of Wind. Cassian and I trailed behind, none of us speaking until my mate opened a set of onyx doors to reveal a sunny sitting room carved from more red stone. 
In Act 20, it says, re-stepped into the hall at the foot of the stairs, revealing a wide passage of carved red stone and sealed set of obsidian doors, veins of silver running throughout. Beautiful, terrifying, like some great beast was kept beyond them. That is the library. Later in the library, in that chapter, it says, robes rustling, Clotho aimed for the sloping walkway to the library as we fell and stepped behind her. The floors were red stone like the rest of the place, but smooth and polished. I wondered if any of the priestesses had ever gone sledding down the spiral path. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> in Agassif 18, Nesta says, There was only the red stone of the stairwell and her jagged breathing and the knives that turned inward and sliced and sliced, the walls pushing in, her legs burning with each step downward. In Akasif 52, when Nesta goes to see the priestess's service, she says this, the wooden pews that filled the massive redstone cavern were packed with pale hooded figures, their blue gems glimmering in the torchlight as they waited for the sunset service to begin. So, that is the house of wind it is redstone from the very tip to literally the very bottom except we don't really see the very very bottom where bryaxis was but i'm gonna assume it's probably redstone as well especially well hang on i'm not i'll talk about it in a second so what is blood salt we learn about it in in house of sky and breath 38 and it says this blood salt bryce breathed Therian looked to her in question, but she didn't bother to explain more. Hmm. Her, Amryn, and Reese are going to get along quite well, aren't they? But she didn't bother to explain more. Blood for life, blood for death. It was summoning salt infused with the blood from a laboring mother's sex and the blood of a dying male's throat. The two greatest transitions of a soul in and out of this world. But to use it here, you can't mean to add it to the water, Bryce said to the astronomer. The old male hobbled back to the ramp. Their tanks are already contain white salt. The blood salt will merely pinpoint their search. So it's a summoning salt, basically. I'm not sure if that's its only use, but that's the use that we get in it in House of Sky and Breath. And it's only ever mentioned in this scene in House of Sky and Breath. Now, what's interesting is that in the scene of House of Sky and Breath, the, the male, uh, Mystic, ends up going towards the hell area, hell planet stratosphere. I think that's what he's... It's like in the realm of the hell planet, but I don't know if he ever says that he actually goes to hell, but he just says he's nearing it. And he ends up talking to Thanatos, the prince of the ravine. Thanatos is mentioned in Akawar in the scene where they get Kira to agree to fight with them in the war. He says that Lord Thanatos requires his assistance and he's basically asking for permission to leave. Thanatos needs his help with his daughter. Now, it doesn't say that Lord Thanatos is in Perithian, but his daughter sure is. So, I I, I don't... Kier's so sus to me. I'm convinced Kier only wanted access to Valaris because in that chapter, he bargains to get access to Valaris is because Thanatos needed him to get access into Valaris. And that's why he never, like, never actually went yet is because he's waiting for when Thanatos needs him to go. That is, that is my serious theory. Like, I know it's a little unhinged, it's a little crazy, but that's my serious theory is that, because in that chapter, he mentions Lord Thanatos, he mentions go, needing to go to Valaris, but he never actually goes to Valaris. And I think it's just like, 
I know I've, I've said it on when I, in my TikTok when I had this like revelation, um, that revelation that he Lord Thanatos needed Kira to get access into it. But like I know shitty dads be shitty daddying. I know that very deeply, and I know that very true and well. So yeah, he could have done it to like mess with more, but he didn't like stay and gloat. He left pretty much immediately. So he wasn't. I know he, he wants to, like, you know, whatever with more, and, like, they don't get along, and that's totally valid, and he's probably gonna die very... I, I know that Kira's probably gonna die, because it's been foreshadowed, like, throughout the books that Kira's probably gonna meet the end of Asriel's truth teller very soon, but I just found it really odd that he never actually... He never gloated. He didn't stay to be snarky. He didn't do anything. He, he left, and he left Iris with them, and it's just, like, it's just, it was just weird. And it was weird because he mentions Lord Thanatos. And in the live that Sarah did for the re-release of A Court of Silver Flames, she mentions that she reread Akatar recently. So even if it was a mistake, and even if she did mess up on a name somehow, she would have caught it in her reread and would have done something to fix that going forward. Do you know what I mean? So I truly believe somehow that's going to get tied in to what's happening also because it was just such a weird scene like to name drop some random dude it, it was just like it felt like we don't even get names for characters we like see sometimes i'm looking at that male in akamath that the boys were talking to at starfall like they like they're talking to this random stranger and we never like know who it is and he never gets mentioned again but he, like they have friends in valaris that they i i <laughs> But she name-dropped Thanatos, so I, I'm I'm holding true that it means something. But how can I say that the House of Wind is blood salt? Well, in Akamath 29, Reese and Vera are talking about Valaris, and he says this. There was a time when the night court was a court of nightmares and was ruled from Hewen City long ago. But an ancient high lord had a different vision. And rather than allowing the world to see his territory vulnerable at a time of change, he sealed the borders and stayed to coup, eliminating the worst of the courtiers and predators, building Valaris from the dreamers, establishing trade and peace. His eyes blazed as if he could peer, as if he could peer all the way back in time and see it, with those remarkable gifts of his. Um... Um, with those remarkable gifts of his, it wouldn't surprise me. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That just tickled my brain. That just tickled my... Did it tickle your brain? It tickled my brain. To preserve it, Reese continued. He kept it a secret, and so did his offspring and their offspring. There are many spells on the city itself laid by him and his heirs that, that make those who trade here unable to spill our secrets and grant them inept skills at lying in order to keep the, the origin of their goods and their ships hidden from the rest of the world. Rumor has it that the ancient high lord cast his very life's blood upon the stones and the river to keep the spell eternal. And then further down it says, But along the way, despite his best intentions, darkness grew again. 
Not as bad as it had once been, but bad enough that there is a permanent divide within my court. We allow the world to see the other half, to fear them, so that they might never guess that this place thrives here. And we allow the court of nightmares to continue, blind to Valaris' existence, because we know that without them, there would be some courts and kingdoms that might strike us and invade our borders to discover the many, many secrets we have kept from the other high lords and courts these millennia. So... He says, there are many spells cast on the city itself, laid by him and his heirs. So he cast, rumor has it, the ancient high lord cast his very life's blood upon the stones, probably sacrificing himself, but it's also cast by his heirs. So I'm almost wondering if the laboring mother, like the blood spilled from when she gave birth, she gave birth like in the house of wind for the blood saltness. Like, I know it, this is going to sound, like, wild and weird, and I don't really have anywhere to, like, kind of, like, pinpoint this theory to go anywhere other than we get a lot of, like, ADIS, like, you know, I, actually, there's a lot to be said about the House of Wind. So, we get that cat-like presence that we think is ADIS in, in mostly only the House of Wind or around the House of Wind, because we have that one cat-like presence that we read about earlier that twitches me. So, if it is a summoning spell... Or it is summoning salt also. It could also be used for spells as well, just like obsidian salt can be used for spells as well, along with summoning. Maybe blood salt also can do that. So there could be a summoning happening unwittingly, the same way that Nesta unwitting... Mm. When Nesta is in the House of Wind, in the cavern, in that chapter, what chapter was it? Akasif 52, she unwittingly scries with the... <laughs> she scries with her bones and the walls of the house of wind which are what red stone which is probably blood salt which ends up her scrying and learning about the harp <sighs> this went from okay this is pretty unhinged to okay this is less unhinged and more likely and makes sense to me <gasps> mm. That makes so much sense. And the last thing I'll leave you with before we move on to theory theory, because like I said, I have nothing really to like branch this theory off to other than I think it's blood salt and I think it's going to be important later on, considering how important the House of Wind became in Akasif. I also, I'm like a firm, I, I do not understand how Nesta's power of death ended up like, like making something alive and sentient like the house. And, like, how it could give them cake and give them, you know, whatever she wanted. So, I literally think she's just summoning. She's like, I want cake. And it summons cake from somewhere. Because it's summoning salt. Within her power as well. So, like, the power of the cauldron with summoning salt equaled whatever the House of Wind was doing. Because it, do like, it boggled my mind that the House of Wind could be, like whatever. It just never made sense to me. And I know, like, you know, plot's gonna plot and Sarah's gonna make a little funny and, like, that's fine. And I, you know, not everything needs to be read into. I know shocking coming out of my mouth, but that always did, like, 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 bother me a little bit because I was like, it doesn't make sense if her power is death. How does that work? But anyways, we'll move on. So, theory three is tying to, is one of how do I explain this? Because it's kind of weird. It's it's an interesting theory because in Throne of Glass, we get introduced to these people called the Asterian Fae. They get brought up in first 
I think first in Assassin's Blade technically, because Assassin's Blade, while published, the published book set of novellas came out after Throne of Glass. They were originally out before Throne of Glass as separate ebooks. Um, so they, we first get mentioned them in Assassin's Blade, but later we see them in Throne of Glass where we meet some Asterian Fey stallions. But obviously, because the Asterian Fey get mentioned in Tower of Dawn, one of their blades gets left behind. Nezrin ends up picking it up. That blade, in particular, in particular, we'll talk about it in a second, is very standouty. But they get mentioned in Tower of Dawn, and anything that gets mentioned in Tower of Dawn is basically like red flag to crossover to me. So the fact that Sarah threw this in in Tower of Dawn really stands out to me. And obviously, we want we want to find a connection here. Why would why else would there be a name that's so close to the Asteri, and we get Asterian? Like, come on, Sarah. Come on. We, we're on to you. We know you. We, 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 we're crazy enough to think that this is something. So I want to make it something. And I'm going to make it something, not with the blades, not with the fae, but with their horses. So the first time we see one of these horses, and I'll tell you what I think it ties to. In a, well, not, so I think the Assyrian horses are tied to the Pegasuses that we see in a Court of Silver Flames, and I'm going to explain it to you, but let's go through what the Asterian horses are. So, in Crown of Midnight 19, we see one in, uh, this is when Dorian is giving Kale his birthday present, and it says this, a knight black Asterian stallion stood within the pen, staring at them with ancient dark eyes. In Empire Storms 59, when Aelin is reunited with her mare, and we'll read about that mare in a second, she says, And then the Asterian horse emerged from the stables. The horse was a storm-made flesh. In Assassin's Blade, Assassin in the Desert, Chapter 5, uh, we see that mare for the first time, and it says this, It is an Asterian horse, Ansel breathed, her red-brown eyes growing huge. The horse was black as pitch, with dark eyes that bored into Selena's own. She had heard of Assyrian horses, of course, the most ancient breed of horse in Aurelia. Legends claim that the Fae made them from the four winds, spirit from the north, strength from the south, speed from the east, and wisdom from the west. Oh, ooh, wisdom from the west, you say? Remind me, me remind me, to talk just a second after I'm done reading this quote. <laughs> All rolled into the slender, snouted, high-tailed, lovely creature that stood before her. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful, Ansel whispered? Her name is Hilsey. Mares, Selena remembered, were more prized as Asterian pedigrees were traced through the female line. And that one, Ansel said, pointing to the next doll, is named, I'm gonna butcher this name if I apologize, is Kessida which means drinker of the wind in the desert dialect. Kessida's name was fitting. The mare was a dapple gray with seafoam white mane and a thundercloud coat. She huffed and stomped her forelegs, staring at Selena with eyes that seemed older than the earth itself. Selena suddenly understood why the Asterian horses were worth their weight in gold. I'm just going to quickly, before I move on to the next bit uh, about in Assassin's Blade in the next chapter, that if they say wisdom from the west all throughout this is so great this is so great this is one of those times where i'm like sarah 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 they say wisdom from the west 
But all throughout Akatar, we hear about the northern wind. Uh, I think it says like I think it's like almost a direct quote. Don't don't hold me hold me to it. But I'm pretty sure when Farah in Akor, the last time her and the serial speak, it says that the serial like tilts its head to listen to the western wind for like to listen for the truth on the western wind or something like that. And Elaine, when she tracks down the serial, she says it moves like a breath of the western wind. And the serial knows all truths. Wisdom. Ha 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 ha. That makes me just want to like, ooh, that makes me just want to scooch. <laughs> okay, so in the next chapter, they say this about Kessida. Cressida. Kessida? Kessida? I might be pronouncing it wrong, and I'm sorry. In Assassin's Blade, Assassin in the Desert, chapter six, it says this, Kessida moved like thunder and turned with the swiftness of lightning. The mare was so fast that Selena's eyes watered in the wind. And then later down, it says, astride the Asterian horse racing faster than the wind. And then later down, it says, and then they were at the lip of the ravine, which went down, down, down to a jade river, hundreds of feet below. And Kessida was soaring only air beneath them, nothing to keep her from the death that now wrapped around her completely. So it literally says like she like, it's basically like they make like this impossible leap across the ravine, right? Almost like they're what? Flying. Almost like they're flying. Like a Pegasus. So in Tower of Dawn chapter 33, we learn this about the Assyrian Fae. Only fey blades could remain this sharp after thousands of years, said Sartak, settling down the knife that he had been inspecting, likely forged by the fey smiths of Asterion, to the east of Dornal, perhaps even before the first demon wars. A prince who had studied not only his own empire's history, but that of many others. History was certainly not her strongest subject, so she asked, Asterion? Like the horses? One and the same. Great smiths and horse breeders, or so it once was before the borders closed and the world darkened. So this is before the first demon wars, the first wars that happened multiple millennia ago, sometime around the dawn of time, as we talked about in the Throne of Glass timeline episode. So this would be around the time of rifts. This, this very well could be, I mean, the fact that it's in Tower of Dawn and they're talking about the first wars and the pre like Dawn of Time stuff, it makes me really do think like, yes, this has to be tied somehow to the Asteri. We know that the Asteri do like to one, breed things and two, like to create weapons as we see with like the Brimstone missile. So very well, this could be them. I, I mean, I would say if you were to put money down, I would, I wouldn't, I would feel pretty confident putting your money down on that bet. But in Akasif 41, we see a Pegasus, and this is what it says. Cassian had heard the rumors of Helion's rare Pegasuses. Say that ten times fast. Pegasuses. Pegsies? Pegsi? I don't know. It's like mis or moose. It, it, who knows? Myth claimed his prized stallion had flown so high the sun had scorched him black. But beholding the beast now, well, Cassian might have been envious if he didn't have wings himself. The winged horses were rare, so rare, that it was said Helion's seven breeding pairs of flying horses were the only ones left. Lore held that there had once been far more of them before recorded history, but that most had just vanished, as if they had been devoured by the sky itself. Hmm, like a rift. Like a rift? Like they flew into a rift and disappeared? Hmm, yeah, hmm, okay. 
Their population had dwindled further in the last thousand years for reasons no one could explain. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep cutting. Am I? Because I, my brain is like, I'm on a good roll today. My brain is just really working out some of these kinks that's inside of here. But population dwindled further in the last thousand years, kind of like the Fae in Crescent City, which is interesting. For reasons no one could explain. This hadn't been helped by Amarantha, who had butchered three dozen of Helian's Pegasuses in addition to burning so many of his libraries. Seven Pegasus pairs that remained had survived thanks to being set free before Amarantha's cronies could reach their pens in the highest tower of Helian's palace. Helian's most beloved pair, his black stallion Melian and his mate, hadn't produced offspring in three hundred years and that the last foal hadn't made it out of weaning before he succumbed to an illness no healer could remedy. According to legend, the Pegasuses had come from the island that the prison sat upon, had once fed in their fair meadows that had long given way to moss and mist. Perhaps that was part of the decline, their homeland had vanished, when whatever had sustained them there was no longer. Cassian let himself admire the sight of Melian alight in the black stones of the courtyard before the towering gates into the mountain the stallion's mane blowing in the wind off his jet-black wings. Few things remained in the fairy realms that could summon any sort of wonder from Cassian, but the magnificent stallion, proud and haughty and only half-tamed, snatched the breath from his chest. So, Melian looks exactly like the black mares that, or the black stallions that we see in Throne of Glass. That's a loose connection, but a connection all the same. Now, what I think is interesting is that Melian's name means lightning or little lightning as we've giggled about before and throughout throughout throne of glass these horses are likened to thunder to lightning and to storms so again slightly loose slightly loose but we know that likeness can be foreshadowing with sarah j mass and i think that this likeness is most definitely foreshadowing and i just i think it's interesting that these pegasuses that we see here in A Court of Silver Flames have long lifespans. I mean, what did he say? He said, Melian and his mate hadn't produced offspring in 300 years. So they definitely live longer than a horse. And throughout Throne of Glass, they say that the Asterian horses have ancient eyes. They seem older than, than the earth. So uh, I really think that if there is going to be a connection, where do Pegasus come from? Well, I think there's going to be a connection within Throne of Glass. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen an animal that is similar to Throne of Glass animals. Eris has similar hounds to Dorian's hounds. They look exactly alike, they are resembled exactly alike, and they're spoken of exactly alike. So, this kind of idea that there could be creatures that, from the time of the rifts, that interchanged as well, pets, I think that could be true. Whether that these Assyrian horses came to Perithian and ended up breeding with some kind of flying creature and they ended up producing pegasuses or the pegasuses went to Aurelia and somehow their wings got bred out of them and they were just kept their kind of wind-like abilities. That I could also see. So it could kind of go flip-flopped either way. But I just think that, you know, we're all trying to grasp to connection to the Asterian fae and the rest of the, you know, the SGM universe. And I think that this is the probably one of the best ways to do it, aside from maybe that blade that Nezrin found being... Maybe it could be Nerebin. I, I, I don't know. 
I'm not sure about that, but, you know, there is a tie to it. Nerebin was mentioned in A Court of Silver Flames and said to be missing, and it was chucked in the water. Water ways can be, like, portals, so, like, the, it could have happened somehow. We know that Nerebin's going to come up some in some way, in some fashion, eventually, and to try and liken it to that blade totally is not wrong. Um, it's definitely in my notes, for sure. Our next theory is somewhat small, as in, again, it, you know, these theories, they, they're definite parallels. They have, you know, deep canon connections, but where they go, how they go, there's not a lot to talk about outside of how I think they kind of connect. And one of these things is Reese's family ring. I've talked about it a little bit before. I've definitely talked about it on TikTok. No, nah, I didn't actually talk about it. I just dropped it on the back of the whiteboard in a funny video and just never, <laughs> never talked about it again. But I definitely think that Reese's family ring, the ring that his mother gave him, the ring that Farrah has, is going to somehow connect to necromancy. And the reason for that is is a quite a, is a few reasons, but we'll just dive right into it. So the first time we see this ring is in Akamath 20 when Farrah is in the Weaver's cottage and she says this, I felt it then, like a tap on my shoulder. I pivoted, keeping one eye on the Weaver and the other on the room as I wove through the maze of table and junk. Like a beacon, a bit of light laced in with his half-smile, it tugged me. Hello, it seemed to say. Have you come to claim me at last? Yes, yes, I wanted to say, even as a part of me wished it otherwise. Then later down it says, I followed that pulse towards the shelf lining the wall beside the hearth. Nothing and nothing on the second, but on the third, right above my eye line, there, I could almost smell his salt and citrus scent. The bone carver had been correct. I rose on my toes to examine the shelf. An old letter, knife, books in leather that I did not want to touch or smell, a handful of acorns, a tarnished crown of ruby and jasper, and a ring. A ring of twisted strands of gold and silver, flecked with pearl, and set with a stone of the deepest solid blue. Sapphire, but different. I'd never seen a sapphire like that, even in my father's offices. This one, I could have sworn that in the pale light, the lines of a six-pointed star radiated across the round, opaque surface. Reese. This had Reese written all over it. So later in Akamath 21, we learn about this ring, and it says this. But he merely picked up the ring and gave me a nod and thanks. It was my mother's ring as if that were all the explanation and answer owed. How did you lose it? I demanded. I didn't. My mother gave it to me as a keepsake and then took it back when I reached maturity and gave it to the weaver for safekeeping. I... Reese's mother? Um, <laughs> what's that quote from Pride and Prejudice? Oh, what is it from Pride and Prejudice? I feel like it's from Pride and Prejudice, but they end up saying, like, what a fearsome creature to behold... Oh, yes, it's when Darcy, it's in the 2005, I, I don't know, I I know it from the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, and that's why I have it memorized, is because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but it's when Darcy and Elizabeth are, like, doing a little bit of banter, and he said, he's talking about an accomplished woman, he, she must be good at sewing, reading, writing, whatever, and then Elizabeth goes, Ooh, she must be a fearsome creature to behold. That's how I feel about Reese's mom. What a fearsome creature to behold. She was 
you know, she, she was just, she must've just been a force of nature. And I, I think one of the, one of the biggest things I think we are robbed of in Akatar is learning about Reese's mom and his sister. Like he doesn't even speak their names and like him not talking about his dad, I can totally understand. His dad seemed like a POS. Like that's fine, whatever. But like to not even speak their name, like <sighs> that boy. Sometimes I I swear, I swear he does it or Sarah does it just to like toy with me because she seems like she was just you know, a goddess among women. Like, she bit back and she fought and she was a, she was an accomplished woman. She was an accomplished seamstress. She taught Reese. She took care of Reese. She could hold her own against the Illyrians or at least tried to. And she was able to maneuver her way in her relationship with her mate who she, you know, they say that they didn't love each other, but she was able to handle him and kind of get her way, and I just think that she must have been, you know, an astonishing woman, to say the very, 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 very least. But back to the ring. The theory comes from this. In Akamath 60, when Reese wants to give Farah the ring for her to wear as a mating, you know, as a symbol of their mating bond, it says this, Reese shut the door and went to a small box on the desk, and then silently handed it to me. My heart thundered as I opened the lid. The star sapphire gleamed in the candlelight as if it were one of the starfall spirits trapped in stone. Your mother's ring? My mother gave me that ring to remind me she was always with me, even during the worst of my training, and when I reached my maturity, she took it away. It was an heirloom of her family, had been handed down from female to female over many, many years. My sister wasn't yet born, so she wouldn't have known to give it to her, but my mother gave it to the weaver, and when she told me that, and then she told me that if I were to marry your mate, then the female would either have to be smart or strong enough to get it back, and if the female wasn't either of those things, then she wouldn't survive the marriage. I promised my mother that any potential bride or mate would have the test, and so it sat there for centuries. My face heated. You said it was something of value. It is, to me, and my family. So, the the reason why, I mean, I just read the whole thing so you can get the whole story. Again, Reese's mother, like, to make a bargain with the weaver, first of all, what did she bargain? Um, that'll drive me crazy to the ends of the earth. But the way she describes it, so it, it is a star-shaped sapphire, and it's, it is likened to a starfall spirit trapped in stone. Starfall by name is only mentioned a handful of times throughout Akatar, even though it's a very pivotal part of the story. One of the very few times it's ever mentioned is mentioned here, and it's mentioned not as like one of the starfall lights, you know, it's nothing like that. She says it's literally a starfall spirit trapped in stone. <sighs> like that, like that is enough to make me like run circles around this one bit of text, but. Uh, the, the ring is described a few times in Akawar 15. It says, To the ring now on my finger, at the star sapphire sky bright against the silver. In Akawar 38 it says, And then the mating band on my finger, the star sapphire dull, 
blood crusted between the delicate folds of the Ark of Metal. Now, this is actually interesting because this is during the battle in the Summer Court, and it says it's dull now. Um, interesting. Kind of like a siphon. Huh? Interesting. I don't know. But we see a six-pointed star two times in all of the SJM universe, we, or three times technically. We see it with the ring and then two other times in Crescent City. We see it first in House of Earth and Blood 92. This is right when Bryce is making the drop and it says this, the lights flowed down the ley lines between the gates, connecting them all along the main avenues. It formed a perfect six-pointed star. The lines of the light began to spread, curving around the city walls, cutting off the demons now aiming for the land beyond. Light met light, met light, met light, until the city was ringed with it, until every street was glowing, and Bryce was still making the drop. At this time, Danica, who is dead, gets brought to her. And when we see it again in House Ab 61 and 62, I'm just going to blend these two bits together, but it says this, Ethan angled his head, a six-pointed star, he said, like the one Bryce had made between the gates this spring, with the seventh candle in the center. It is a symbol of balance, she explained, moving away a foot, but keeping the dagger at her side. Her crown of cloud berries seemed to glow with an inner light. Two intersecting triangles, male and female, dark and light, above and below, and the power that lies in the place where they meet. Her face became grave. It is that place of balance where I will focus my power. She motioned to the candles. No matter what you see or hear, stay on this side of the candles. A chill went up, Ethan. And then in the next chapter, it says, Light ruptured from the star, blinding and white, a great wind shaking the trees around them, sending the olives scattering in, the, in a pitter-patter. Ethan squeezed his eyes shut against it, letting his claws slide free. When the wind stopped, he blinked, adjusting his vision. His brother's name died in his throat. A creature, tall, thin, and robed, lurked at the center of the six-pointed star. Hypaxia let out a soft gasp. Ethan's stomach clenched. He'd never seen the male, but he'd seen drawings. The Underking. You were not summoned, Hypaxia said, mustering her surprise. She lifted her chin, every inch the queen. Return to the misty isles over which you rule. So, the... She uses this in a summoning spell to summon the dead. Hypaxia is a necromancer. That's her, one of her powers, one of her gifts. So I think I've always kind of held belief that somehow either Reese's mom or his sister, I always wanted it to be his sister because, you know, you know, a mom would be great, you know, whatever. That's nice and fine and well. But like, I feel like there's so much more plot that could happen with his sister. Not that I talk about ships, but like his sister and Azrael. <gasps> wink, wink, hint, hint. Ah. <gasps> But if she could come back somehow, like, we never know how old she was. We don't know anything about his sister. Nothing, a single thing. But what we do know about Reese's mom is that she did have some type of ability to see something in the future. How else could she have made such perfect dresses for Farah that fit her perfectly? What, you think Reese is just sitting there all, like, with a little sewing needle in his teeth and some string, like, cinching in the sides to fit Farah? No! Like, they fit her perfectly. His mom planned for Farah at her exact measurement. How did she know she wouldn't be, like, some midget like me? 
or some gigantor, some beautiful gladiator woman who could topple down the weaver's cottage and snatch the ring with her bare fists. Like, <laughs> how did she know? How did she know anything? Oh, it drives me crazy. And I think it's interesting that she does choose to give it to Reese, even though she could still have had a daughter, and she did have a daughter, and you, I know Reese. I know Reese in my core. And if she didn't know, and she was just like, I gave you this ring, not knowing I was going to have a daughter, and then they did have a daughter, he had a sister, do you think Reese would have been like, no, it's my ring, you said it was mine, I'm keeping it. Like, no, obviously he would have been like, yes, it's a mother-daughter tradition, I would love for you to give it to your daughter. Uh, like, Reese would never have been, like, tromping his feet, like, I think there's a reason why she gave it to Reese and why she never gave it to to Reese's sister. And the reason why, so we know that this ring was passed down from generations. I think it's interesting that this is a very beautiful, very ornate ring, and it comes from the Illyrian female side. We don't know anything about Reese's Illyrian family. We don't know if he has any Illyrian aunts and uncles. We don't know if he has any Illyrian grandparents. We know zip, nada, zilch, nothing about Reese's Illyrian family. Does that drive me absolutely bonkers? Yeah, it does. Yes, it does. But it was passed down. So this ring could hold a spirit from maybe their ancestor. Could it have been Thea, Thea's daughter, Nyx, some other type of Illyrian goddess. Maybe Analeus wasn't a man. Maybe Analeus was a female. And they just changed history because why would a female ever do anything awesome? Who knows? We also don't know if the Illyrian females have any power. It's never noted. It's never cited. But we know the males of the of Illyria. They probably would stifle that power with every chance that they got. Could this just been a female siphon? But my thing, I think that it's going to be, I think that there is a soul inside of it. I think it's like kind of like a horcrux almost maybe. And maybe Reese's sister's soul is inside of it. And she could come out or come back or be summoned again to life somehow. I I have a few like unhinged things I want to happen in Akatar. That is one of them. Mostly because why why would Reese never ever say her name? I do not hold I I know a lot of people have this theory and I don't mean to like, you know, if that's your theory, then and you have joy in it. I love that for you. But the theory that, you know, Reese's mom or sister ended up somehow like going through a rift and becoming Rune's mom or whatever, I just, there's no way that I can hold that because like Reese physically held their severed heads. Like, um, like, literally, in his hands, held their severed, like, just, um, I know it's gruesome, I know it's horrible, I know it's traumatic, but please, just for one second, think of this. Reese, who is a powerful Demetti, Reese, who is extremely powerful, even before he got his High Lord, before that High Lord power shifted to him, he was more powerful than his father. Like, he would know their sense. He would know if someone was trying to mess with him. Who is more powerful in a Demetian than Reese? Like, how, how would they be able to trick him in such an innate, instinctual way? Even, even if Tamlin somehow shapeshifted somebody else's severed head to hide, like, except for some reason to hide his sisters. One, why would they never have come back? Two, uh, how, how, how? 
would how would Tamlin, Tamlin of all people, like a Tamlin of all people, have been able to open a rift to another world to send him somewhere? If that's your theory, I love that for you. I can see why you would think that because, you know, Reese and Rune look, are supposed to look identical. How did that happen? Like, I get it. I totally get it. But for me and my love for Reese, if that was fake, him holding their severed heads was fake? Besties, that's, that's, that's horrible. That's horrible. Are you kidding me? That's horrible. I would far rather we get, like, some type of, like, literal necromancy bringing his sister back to life type of deal. You know? Okay. We're gonna move on to the very, very last theory. Our last theory is on the Ouroboros mirror. And the... You guys don't know this, um... But I, I am plagued by that Ouroboros mirror. I don't think I've really talked about it too, too, too much on the podcast. Other than, I think I might have mentioned how I think that when Farah saw herself in the mirror, she actually saw her high lady form. But I think other than that, I don't really talk about the Ouroboros mirror, despite the fact that I am obsessed with it. I am obsessed with the Ouroboros mirror. Now, this term Ouroboros is actually is something from real life myth and it's basically about how the term ending and beginnings it's a it's a snake eating itself and it's just basically like the ending and beginnings and like the death of something can be the birth of something new it's it's very if anyone's to get a tattoo if you want a subtle subtle akatar tattoo get look into ouroboros like i if i was to get a, a an Akatar tattoo, which I, just, I I actually might. I would literally get like m- my arm banded with a snake eating itself, the Ouroboros mirror, with maybe like an Akatar quote like in it or with it or like on the scales somehow. Um, because I think it's just it's do your research, look into it. It's super super cool. Um, but this mirror, the Ouroboros mirror, we learn about it in Akor twenty four, and it says this: there was one mirror, the Ouroboros, she called it. It was old even when we were young. A window to the world. All could be seen. All could be told through its dark surfaces. Kier possesses it, an heirloom of his household. Bring it to me. That is my price. The Ouroboros, and I am yours to wield, if you can find a way to free me. So I think it's interesting that Kier's family owned it, seeing as... In Akwar, it says, I suppose Kier's family owning the Ouroboros for millennia suggested success rate of walking away was so low. Um, but Kier's family have a trove of truth items like the Ventress, the Bone Carver being the truth god, in my opinion, kind of all tying together here. In Akwar 58, they say this, he wanted a gift in exchange, the Ouroboros. The surreal let out a sound that might have been a gasp, delight or horror, I did not know. The mirror of beginnings and endings. And then when Farah actually sees the mirror, she says this, Akwar 68, and there, against the far wall of the chamber, snow crusted its surface, its bronze casting. The Ouroboros was massive, a round disc as tall as I was, taller, 
and the metal around it had been fashioned around a massive serpent, the mirror held within its coils as it devoured its own tail, ending and beginning. So my theory in this is that this mirror, the serpent in, in the SJM universe, not just, you know, whatever myth or whatever, this serpent is actually probably, maybe, as we learn, in Air Fire 23, the three-faced goddess's pet. And Manon says this, she named her wavern Abraxas after the ancient serpent who held the world between its coils at the behest of the three-faced goddess. Oh, so tasty. Mm, I love that. Mm, I love that the, the mother has a pet. Now, I have like an unhinged theory that maybe Abraxas is also the Viper Queen that we see in Crescent City. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> but if not, the Ouroboros. Now, we actually see a serpent. The term serpent isn't actually used quite a lot in Akatar as as much as you would as you would think it isn't actually it's only used a very specific few times or to describe very specific things and one of these things is actually helian's arm cuff in akawar 43 it says a golden cuff of upright serpent encircled one powerful bicep in akawar 47 it says helian threw himself onto the couch across from cassian and more he ditched that radiant crown somewhere but he kept that gold armband of the upright serpent Helian merely toyed with the gold cuff of an, on his sculpted arm, twisting the serpent to the center of his bicep. Now, does that mean anything? Probably not. But I think there's something to be said about, like, Helian, you know, libraries, knowledge, all that stuff. And then the Ouroboros mirror, kind of knowing all, seeing all. So there's only one other thing that I really want to mention, other than just that one tiny little unhinged thought that I think the Ouroboros is tied to Abraxas, the mother's pet, not Manon's, is that the... Ouroboros mirror is still in the prison. It's still in the prison. Yep. It's still in the prison. And I, I love, I love our inner circle. I love our inner circle. I love every single member of them. I would smooch them all. I would even smooch Amran and run away before she could kill me. But if she, she did like, that's totally fine. My bad. She caught me slipping. Right. Love Amran. Tiny little ancient being. I love her. I would love to sit down with them and be like, besties, we need to step up. We need to be better. We need to like, you left the Ouroboros mirror in the prison. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who's looking through it into the prison that the harp was in? <laughs> if it's a witch mirror, like we see in Baba Yellow Legs in Crown of Midnight, um, someone could be looking through it. Also, also, on top of that, what did the bone carver see when he looked into the mirror? Because you guys know, you know, I am convinced my man, the man I love, the man I simp for, Mr. Bone Carver, Monsieur Bone Carver, God of Truth, Sin Eater. I think the sin, I think the term, the name Sin Eater is like the most badass thing. I would die for a shirt about the Sin Eater. 
hint hint wink wink anybody who makes merch please let me know um I don't think he's dead I fully 100% convinced cannot tell me otherwise he's not actually gone and even if he like was like killed like he probably just went to see void and void was just like my man and he's like dude father probably father probably I got stuff to where I'm working on and his father's probably like yeah bud go back go do what you need to do <laughs> so I am I am convinced that the bone carver like is not dead and if he isn't dead what did he see and did he do something like did he line it all up on purpose like that's what I'm thinking because because Sarah in that live I know I always mention that live but that live was so good she talks about the bone carver twice and she mentions the prison twice and when she's talking about her reread she was talking about how much she loved those scenes with him and she's been thinking about him and I'm like I think about him every day Sarah he's my favorite <sighs> anyways that's it that's the end of these theories. Those are the ones that I've got for you. They're not, like, they're not unhinged. They're not, like, in the realm of, you know, not possible, but they're just not, like, big, you know, huge revelations that require, you know, full deep dives, full episodes that can, like, be expanded on, but they are important as in they do line up. And, like, I, I've always wanted to talk about them. I want to get them out there into the universe before, you know, um, a release. I'd love to have most of my theories out before the release that way we can kind of go back and laugh at all the things I've gotten wrong or you know kind of like like oh you were close I'm convinced well no I'm not convinced I will be okay if one third I'm wrong one third I'm right <laughs> there's a few things I gotta be right on you know dust court being the eighth court being the prison aisles that's gotta be right because there's so much canon evidence you know in there Reese being a word hound convinced that you know that kind of stuff more being starborn has to be Azrael being her knight has to be we'll talk about it next week again but one third I want to be close like I want to be like okay the idea was there, the imprint was left, but, like, you got a little bit convoluted, and, like, that's okay with me. And if I'm wrong about everything, I'm totally fine with it. You know, we're just having fun. We're just diving into this world that we love. We're just having community, enjoying just in serotonin that Sarah gives us, and that's enough for me. Like, this is just enough for me. But, at the you know, when Crescent City 3 comes about, or, you know, just the future of the SJMU, because obviously I don't think everything is going to get answered in the next book. I think it's going to take, you know, lots and lots of lots of building, and that's fine. Um, because as more books come out, we get, we get more stuff to dig through, we get more evidence, you know, that's going to be great. But I really do think that, you know, I want to be at least close. I want to be at least close. But if I'm not, fine. It's fine. I still love Sarah with all that I, you know, with everything that I have. There's one more thing I wanted to mention about the Ouroboros is in Norse myth for Ragnarok, Loki has three children. He has Hela, who is a half, half of her is dead, half of her is alive. And then we have Fenris, who is his wolf and is his wolf son. And he was growing and growing and growing. And the gods ended up, um, they're trying to trap him so he couldn't grow anymore because he kept growing and growing, becoming more powerful. And one of the gods, Tyr, ends up, um, Tyr is the god of justice and, like, righteous anger, basically, or, like, you know, righteous just justice, whatever. But Tyr 
they're trying to distract him and they're kind of like playing this game with Fenris and they're like let's try and trap you and Fenris is like I love these I love my aunts and uncles like yay I'm gonna break through these chains and we'll have a good laugh and they're all like being serious but he's not and then and he actually sees something that think he thinks is actually going to trap him. And they're like, well, if it actually traps you, then we'll let you go. And Fenris is like, well, how do I know you're going to let me go? And so Tyr offers, he's like, well, I'll put my arm in your mouth. And if we you can't get out, then you can take my arm. And Fenris is like, dope. Who's going to sacrifice their arm? Tyr literally sacrifices his arm. And like, uh, they he puts his arm in his mouth. Fenris can't get out. He chomps the arm off. Tyr just loses an arm, moves on with his life, basically. So that's two of the three children. So Hela, obviously, that is very reminiscent to Hell, the princes of Hell, fine. We have Fenris, who is a wolf. We have Fenris, Fenrir, Fendir, all of those names being tied to Fenris. And then Loki had a third child, and it was a serpent called Jorgen. Jorgen Mimer? I don't know. I can't know. <laughs> one of the stories of Ragnarok is that he's, like, very hungry. He, like, eats everything kind of thing. Like, a hungry, hungry... This is not, you know... This is not the prose Edda rendition. This is just Lillian's version. Or the PL version. Professor Lily's version, as we remember from the story of Thea and all of them. Uh, but they end up, like, shoving his tail in his throat and, like, he kind of, like, eats himself in, like, a big old circle forever. Um... So that is also tied in with Norse myth. So when we're talking about Crescent City and all the, like, ties to Norse myth with, like, the Vanir and all that stuff and, you know, potential Ragnarok. So with the Ouroboros, we do kind of have all three of Loki's children who end up causing Ragnarok in other stories, in the other SJM universe. So there's that. That's the last thing I wanted to add on to. But that's all I got for today. Um, thank you so much. Again, I apologize for the the pause on the Asriel deep dive. Trust me. Trust me. I want to spend an hour and something minutes talking about Asriel. He's my favorite bat boy. But I just needed to be perfect and perfected and it's just not yet and I just need some more time and I'm sorry. You know, I spend taking notes and, and putting all together the show stuff does take quite a bit of time throughout the week to get it ready for recording day and I just needed more time with it. So there's that. Next week, we'll be having a conversation with two other theorists in the SJM universe, Rosie and Jennifer. They're both on TikTok and Instagram. I tag them on stuff all the time, but you'll get their, you know, tags and stuff next week. But they're going to be coming on for a deep dive conversation, and I'm so, so, so excited. Oh, they are my very bestest friends. They are wonderful, delightful human beings. They, they know just as enough if not more than me on the SJM universe. So it's going to be a really, really great, fantastic time. I cannot wait to just like go back and forth with them as we do daily on SJM theory stuff. So that's next week and I'm just so excited for that. So the Azrael deep dive will be not next week, but the week after for you guys. So thank you. Thank you so much. I have so much fun today. I love talking about, this is just, like, the stuff that, like, makes me giddy, you know. They're little things, but they're big things, you know. Also, they're potential plot lines, and they can mean things, and, oh, I can't believe I never put together the summoning of the cake with Nesta. That drove me crazy. But I will see you next week. Thank you so much. Have fun. Stay safe. And goodbye.